Thanks for listening to the Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Medical School. In today's Voices of UMass Med podcast, we are discussing some very promising developments in research for Tay-Sachs disease, a rare and always fatal genetic neurological disorder that destroys nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord. Few children with Tay-Sachs will reach their fifth birthday. Currently, there is no cure, but for years now, researchers here at UMass Medical School have been laying the groundwork, deepening our understanding of this disease, all with an eye toward finding a treatment in the form of gene therapy. We're joined today by Miguel Sena Estevez, PhD, an associate professor of neurology and member of the Hooray Gene Therapy Center, and Heather Gray Edwards, a PhD and a DVM, um, who's now an assistant professor of radiology. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Very happy to be um, discussing this work because it is so promising. So. Uh, first, let's start for people who may not be terribly familiar with Tay-Sachs disease. What is the disease? What happens? And how does it present itself in children? So uh, Tay-Sachs disease um, was initially discovered in the uh, 1880s as a disease primarily affecting uh, persons of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. Uh, these children were um, noted to be um, normal at birth, and then as the disease progresses, they um, lose motor tone, they become kind of a little bit of floppy babies, and they slowly slip away, no longer able to eat or drink, and they um, would, would traditionally die from, from malnutrition at about a couple, two years of age, roughly, two to three years. And um, the disease has remained unchanged uh, since then. It was funny, Miguel was talking the other day about how um, you will pull the original report out, and if you read the original description of the disease, it's very accurate. It's dead on. So I, I, I happened, I thought this was really cool because I found the, the original paper from 1885. So I found it online. And, you know, I was reading it because I was actually curious to see if, you know, had anything changed about our understanding of it and so on. And the description of that first patient was so dead on yeah. that honestly nothing has changed. I mean, and that so the description is perfect. And oh. actually, I put it in a, a talk that I showed look, things really haven't changed in 1885. Till today, take that paper, take those excerpts, and they are still applied today. They're still the same. That's really the description of the disease. So nearly 150 years later, right. we're talking Correct. about. And so as a scientist, uh, you know, Miguel, you're a PhD who's been working on genetic diseases, and, and so that code hasn't been cracked yet. And so how do you start to think about cracking it from a scientific perspective? Well, so I think it's a question of, of the technology, right? I, when I started my actually career in science after college, I happened to start working on diseases that are related to Tay-Sachs that are in the same class of lysosomal storage diseases. they essentially caused by mutations in enzymes that are involved in recycling of materials in cells, right? And essentially all these diseases, as you have a mutation in one of these enzymes, they're less than normal function and leads to accumulating a certain metabolites or substrates, and in the case of Tay-Sachs, it's a lipid that accumulates in the brain and leads to the loss of neurons over time, right? And that essentially all that manifestation of neurological decline is just a function of uh, dysfunction and loss. And obviously in humans, we're not fully certain about how one progresses versus the other. And just to take one quick step back, yeah. uh, I don't mean to interrupt no, you, but uh, this we believe is caused by uh, um, 
an error in a gene, essentially, right? Is it one gene, more than one gene, or do we not know yet? No, for Tay-Sachs, it's just one gene. One so gene. It's, it's not, I mean, we're certain. It's, we, we, we know for a fact that it is caused by mutations in a particular gene called HEGS-A, but patients do have uh, different mutations. So many different mutations can cause the same type of deficiency. Um, and so, you know, when I started my career in science, really we didn't have the right tools to deliver genes to the brain in, in any effective way. And I think part of it has been uh, the development of the key technology in gene transfer that really has allowed us to, to move towards uh, developing therapies, starting, you know, very uh, humble, if you will, in mice, which, of course, we all know that mice have been cured in many diseases for many years, but the translation to humans is always where we end up failing, right? And, you know, we take that step, and I think that's where Heather has uh, come in in a, a little later stage of, of the program, but a key stage of the program of using uh, large animal models as a stepping stone towards um, the human clinical trials where we are today. But I think Heather can tell a little bit more also from this development discovery of, of large animal models that I think are have been critical in the development for sure. Heather, let's talk about that. We should say much of the research to date has been done in close collaboration with Doug Martin at Auburn University, where you previously worked. Can you walk us through some of the studies that have given such promising results? Yeah, sure. So um, Tay-Sachs has, a, has a, a sister disease called Santoff disease. Um, they're basically, they're very similar because the, the enzyme that is responsible for Tay-Sachs um, has another subunit that that, co that accumulates with that's involved in actually clearing GM2 ganglioside. And so uh, there's, a, there's um, the Santoff cat model and there's a Tay-Sachs sheet model. The beauty of the two sister diseases is that one therapy treats both diseases. So you develop this one gene therapy, it actually addresses two diseases for the price of one, if you will. So in the, in the, in the Sandhoff mouse studies, these, this unrelenting disease in, in, in Sandhoff cat studies, it's unrelenting disease in cats. You almost set your watch by how the disease progression in cats. And, and this is naturally occurring, naturally occurring in, in cats. In cats, yeah. And then when you treat these cats with gene therapy, it's amazing. They're, they're fine. They do really, really well. And in fact, their lifespan is, is increased just astronomically. And then we also have a sheet model of Tay-Sachs disease, did the same uh, efficacy, tre efficacy treatments in those guys. And we found a different uh, thing. We were able to really treat the brain very effectively, but we ended up developing issues with the spinal cord and realizing that because sheep are so much bigger and their spinal cords are much longer that we weren't treating that as effectively. And so we needed to tailor the therapy yet again a little bit to accommodate a bigger central nervous system size. And so I want to talk a little bit about these sheep because it's important. I, I want to hear like how you discover that these sheep, there was a herd of sheep in Texas, as I understand it, that was found to have Tay-Sachs yeah, yeah. naturally occurring. How were they discovered and were they experiencing symptoms similar to? So there's to farmers, small farmers um, in Texas had a flock of, of Jacob sheep, which are ancient sheep that come from the Middle East. They had a founder effect. All of the Jacob sheep uh, colonies in the U.S. started from th about 30 animals. And so because of that, there's a little bit of inbreeding that took on, which sets the stage for, for the genetic diseases to set in, uh, very similar to how it happens in, in, in people. And, and, and so they ended up having some weak lambs, lambs that didn't do very well, and it kept, kept you know, happening here and there and here and there. Um, and then they sent some of the lambs to University of Texas, and the University of Texas collaborated with a, the grandfather of Tay-Sachs, Ed Kolodny, 
and they actually determined that it was in fact Tay-Sachs disease. And so the, the, the Jacob sheep flock um, ended up coming to myself and a collaborator of ours, Doug Martin at Auburn University, and um, we ended up characterizing Tay-Sachs disease in sheep because it was brand new and discovered, nobody knew really what was going on, and then treating it with gene therapy. So the cat model had been around since the 1970s, but the sheep model was relatively new in 2010. So, Oh, just within the past decade. Mm -hmm. And so when you were doing the gene therapy for Tay-Sachs on the sheep model, much larger, as you said, closer to what it would be in a human body, what did you find and what were the results? We found that we, the, the treatment, the intracranial treatment that worked very well in the cats and in the mouse studies, um, worked very well for, for the sheep cognitively, but they still lost the ability to walk. Based on the sheep data, it affected how we treated the patients with Tay-Sachs. Yeah, and so I want to get to that. So this, um, th this, these studies were promising enough that you all went to the FDA to try to get uh, approval to try this in, in patients. And uh, two patients have been given this gene therapy under an expanded access protocol that, of course, the Food and Drug Administration approved. Can you uh, first explain what expanded access is for people who might not know, and then talk about the two children um, who've received this? Um, so an expanded access uh, trial actually should be referred to as a single patient IND. Um, and usually, of course, it's done in, in, the, in the situations where there's a fatal disease. And actually at UMass, there's been a couple of, of these uh, clinical trials done. Um, People may know it as compassionate. Right. Access. Usually it's compassionate, expanded access, and I guess more correctly is the single patient IND, although this one ended up being expanded uh, to two patients, actually. In some cases, I think in some of these studies, depending on the, the class of drug that is being used, uh, the, the toxicity studies may be a little bit more abbreviated, may not be the full-on uh, type of studies that are necessary for a phase one, two. Um, but also that depends on the, the, the type of disease. So it's, it's always that risk balance of risk and benefit and potential benefit that, of course, for a disease that is fatal and so quickly fatal, of course, there is a big incentive to do a, a clinical trial and, you know, doing obviously some safety to, to assure that, you know, you're not going to make it even worse, right? So in our case, it was a little different. I mean, we're preparing to actually move forward towards a um, phase one, two clinical trial. And for various reasons, ended up treating a, uh, a single patient initially. Um, and, you know, these, this is the first patient that was treated um, was a, an infantile patient. So Tay-Sachs disease manifests or can uh, present in three different forms. The uh, infantile form has an onset at about six months of age, six to seven months of age. The type 2 is a juvenile onset, so it has a little later onset. And then there is the, the adult onset or late onset Tay-Sachs disease that really manifests usually in the teens, uh, sometimes a little later, and then it's a much slower progressing disease that uh, can progress for uh, many, many decades. In fact, in the last meeting of uh, one of the uh, foundations, uh, we actually met a, a a person that was 70 years old, and she had been recently diagnosed. Seven, uh, diagnosed. seven zero? Seventy? Seven zero. Seventy years old and wow. had been recently diagnosed. So those, uh, the first patient was an infantile uh, form of the disease that was already uh, fairly advanced. We had made a commitment uh, to treat this patient, to, uh, to the family to treat the patient. 
And in fact, uh, a team of both scientists and MDs visited uh, the family to assess, not of course not the scientists, but the MDs to assess the child. And at the time it was decided that uh, the full therapeutic approach was not um, advisable uh, to be implemented or to be uh, used in this patient because the disease was already pretty far advanced. So based on Heather's work in Doug Martin at Auburn University, because that's where Heather uh, was before, uh, we decided that a treatment with CSF injection alone uh, had a good chance of showing some benefit. Um, and the, the fact of the matter is that, uh, so first of all, it's safe. So the patient did not show any uh, side effects that would be uh, concerning. And, you know, there's some anecdotal evidence suggesting that, in fact, there are some degree of change. I'm not going to call it therapy. I'm not going to call it recovery necessarily. We have things that are changing with this patient. Maybe a patient. slower progression. Maybe it's hard no, to put your finger on. No, it's actually a little bit more. It's actually different than that. So when you talk to the parents, and we know pretty well the uh, the family, and you know, we, we we ask the family, the mom, once in a while. So how how how's the patient doing? Because you know, obviously, once you're involved in something like this, you you kind of are attached to to the patient, obviously, and. You know, she tells us that she sees all these things that, you know, we would never expect to see in a baby that is an infantile form, mm -hmm. for instance, a trunk tone. That this child now, she sent us pictures like two weeks ago of a child falling asleep in one of those, you know, feeding mm -hmm. chairs, right? Mm, so and, strength in right, their strength torso. Right, strength in the core. That now, is that expect. something that you can quantify? Not really. That's not something that you say, well, that's in, a, in a, one of those usual um, scoring um, tests that, that you do in clinical trials, but there's a lot of these little observations suggesting that it has an, an impact. Can we hang our head and say, oh my God, this is phenomenal? Well, it's a good indication. First of all, didn't cause a problem. That's always the first thing that you start with. And that's really the purpose of with. an expanded right. access, right? To prove. Well, it's, I mean, there is always an, a hope that you are going to see a therapeutic impact because in terms of gene therapy, right, it's, it's a permanent modification. Right, so it's not something that you can stop. It's not something that you can take away. But of course, you know, the first explicit uh, goal is to show that it's safe. We should add that this research is featured in the new 2019 edition of At UMass Med magazine, which you can find online at umassmed.edu slash news if you'd like to read more. So you alluded to something else earlier about your um, connection to patients, families, and advocacy groups. And you know, as a lab-based scientist, a PhD, you may not have started your career really expecting to have that close bond with um, families, and in this case with the Tay-Sachs patient community, but, but you clearly do. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means to you, why it's important, how it affects your science. Well, as a PhD, I can tell you that you know, I chose specifically not going to medicine, but you know, it's um, it's interesting because you work in a lab in a disease in a somewhat abstract manner uh, that changes quite rapidly when you start to see the human drama, right? Of, of these families that you know are desperate, um, and you know, then seeing kids that um, you know they die. And you just start, as you work longer and longer on this, um, initially when you go to some of these family meetings, you know, it's still abstract, 
right? Because you just see pictures on, on, on a wall and, you know, in this, this particular group and Heather knows this, they have a remembrance session. The problem is that as we work on this long enough, you actually start to know these kids and then you start to see pictures on the wall that you knew these kids. And so it's, you know, it's a very big, I have to say, every time we come from these meetings, you come back energized because you're like, there can't be another kid that's going to die that I've met. And unfortunately, you know, over the last, I guess, 15 years, there has been plenty that we've met and have died. Um, but it's certainly, when I, at least for me, whenever I come back, it's like this renewed sense of, look, we have to do something about it. But that's my, my take for me. You know, I'm a lab rat, if you will. Heather, so it's a little different. How about you? Um, so, yeah, so the family meetings are, are amazing. Um, because you do really get to interact with the families and they do come up and talk to you about what's going on and, and you hold their kids and you, you know, you um, meet the kids' siblings, the normal siblings, and you meet mom and dad and you hit their stories and you see the kids year after year, first year, their first diagnosis, they're not very sick. The next year, especially for these infantile patients, they're wheelchair bound and the next year the parents come as bereaved and it sucks. It is the most frustrating Thing. And these families are so wonderful. They're so grateful for everything that you do, but you still feel like you are a complete failure every time you come back from those meetings. And so it is energizing in a, an extremely frustrating way because you, you do go back and you're like, okay, we're really going to have to do it. And they have been the best families for Taysacks. I mean, I can't, I have, so I grew up in a small mountain town in Arizona, and um, I went to a my first Tay-Sachs meeting. I met a family from the same small town. Their parents knew my parents, and this little boy, like, know where their house is, like, and this is a small mountain town. It's really? Like, yeah, and small I met world. this little boy, and I met their family, and I was like, we are going to treat this baby. I was just sure of it, and we didn't, and he died, and it sucked. And his mom is amazing. She, I see her every year, and she's like, you know, I want to see the first Tay-Sachs kid graduate from high school. She's like, that's what I want. I want to see that. And so I hope we can get there for her and for all the rest of them because it's just terrible. It really is. But the good news is, on the upside, not to be Debbie Downer over here, but, um, you know, we develop really close relationships with these families and the foundations and it is a it is truly like a big family every year when we go and it's it's really very nice to have those people in our lives and I'm very grateful for it. I can feel the emotion um, the sincerity from both of you. Be, I'm sure it does become much more personal so so uh, two, two last things that I want to ask you about it's just how cautious are you in terms of course a cure is what you would like it's what every family would like how cautious are you in talking about gene therapy as a possible cure? And then I'm curious, what happens next in this work? Now that you've treated the first couple of patients, what, what's next? Well, talking about a cure, um, I have no doubt that we'll get there. Now, is it with this generation? I mean, we don't know. Now, I think there is good 
sense that uh, there is a good chance that what we're doing today can have an impact? Can it be therapeutic? I mean, we don't know. Obviously, we wouldn't be putting a patient, so the second patient, right? Perhaps coming back to the second patient that was treated. This was a patient that was treated almost pre-symptomatically, which is based on all our experiments, what has the best chance of having an impact. I mean, based on all the animal experiments, all the experience with other forms of therapies for these diseases and neurological diseases, the best chance that you have is treating prior to the onset of symptoms. So we would never go and treat a baby of seven months old if we didn't think there was a chance. I have no doubt that in the next decade that there will be a cure or a transformative enough that we go from a patient that dies at you know two years of age in you know very difficult conditions to patients that can have a quasi-normal life. So I really, so my in my mind, I I agree with with what Miguel said 100%. Um, that we are we're kind of at a at a really hopeful stage right now. We don't have any real. It, it's, it could go either way, you know. We don't have the information in hand right now, and so it's a very exciting time to be in working for Tay-Sachs. I don't think we'll stop doing it until there is a cure. Until you have a cure, we continue to develop technology that we think is going to make it cheaper, better, um, less and, and less invasive, right? Because ultimately what we want is a patient comes to the office, put your arm out or something like that, as simple as that, do an injection and say, go and have a normal life. And that's it. And then I guess we're done. Let's hope we see that day. Yep. Dr. Miguel Sena Estevez, Heather Gray Edwards, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having us. Best of luck as you continue this groundbreaking work. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Thank you for listening. Keep up to date with everything happening at UMass Medical School by following us on Facebook at UMass Med, on Twitter at UMass Medical, and on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School.